my dear Na my dear Nast, <clears throat> I am confounded and chagrined by your picture of this week, in which my personal friends and those whom I asked you especially to spare are exposed to what I think is not only ridicule but injustice. Your picture implies that the president adopts the reform for the purpose of commanding a distasteful potion to those who have concocted it. I think, and therefore I say it frankly, that it injures everybody and the cause concerned. The one, the one thing for which I have strived in the conduct of this paper is unity of excitement. I don't think the pictures and the test should be of variance, and it is possible to criticize a man severely in words without the least ridicule, but it can't be done in pictures. I do not know how I can more strongly protest than I have already done against the fatal policy of firing upon Republicans. Success is not assured by alienating those who up to the non-inculation have exactly the same rights as ourselves. Remember, if it is not the body known as the President's friends who hate the reform, but is the very men you ridicule who have really supported the movement and who mean what they say. I do not assume any right whatever to control your action or to dictate it in any manner. I protest to you as a friend against the injustice done to other friends and in a way of which I must fear the responsibility. Nor is it a personal protest only. The cause of the party and therefore of the country is injured. I support the president sincerely, but I respect the equal sincerity of my friends who differ. The situation is difficult, and our cause requires extreme delicacy of treatment. Today I am to dive with him, with Mr. Sum Sumner about how I can eat his bread, knowing that the paper with which I identified holds him up to com public contempt. Yesterday, when I defended the president to Mr. Schlurz, he shook my hand warmly and said, at least we agree about, upon the point of civil service. What will his feelings be when he sees my paper? My dear Nast, I am very rarely touched by your warmth of regard for my friendship, for I ask you not to do this very thing. I know if, I, if you will excuse me better than you can possibly know the mischief. Very truly yours, George William Curtis. Some say a picture is worth a thousand words. The pictures of cartoonist Thomas Nast were worth at least $100,000 in 1871. That's how much William Tweed, the political boss at the helm of New York's Tammany Hall political machine, offered Nast to stop his onslaught of cartoons attacking Tammany corruption. Nast refused. Born in Germany, Nast immigrated to the United States at the age of six. Struggling to adopt the language of his new homeland, Nast turned to drawing to communicate. He was a natural, and by his late teens, he found work as, one, as a news illustrator for a national newspaper. At the age of 19, Nast's first cartoon was published in Harper's Weekly, one of the nation's leading magazines. Three years later, he joined Harper's full-time, just in time to illustrate the early days of the American Civil War. Some of his early Harper illustrations were descriptive, like his vivid Civil War battle scenes, but he soon found his calling in drawing caricatures and editorial cartoons, which quickly became one of the magazine's biggest draws. 
Political illustrations have a long history in the United States, dating back to Benjamin Franklin's 1754 Join or Die cartoon, but Nass took the medium to a new level. President Lincoln supposedly labeled him our best recruiting sergeant for his wartime cartoons. Then, with the war over, Nass shifted his focus towards a new enemy, corruption. Nast attacked corruption nationwide, but his favorite target of ridicule was Tweed and Tammany Hall. Using a toolkit of visual shorthand, Nash turned Tweed into a national figure and a larger-than-life public enemy. Along the way, he also popularized a number of enduring symbols, including Uncle Sam, the Republican elephant, and the Democratic donkey. Nash was relentless in talking Tammany, attacking Tammany. Included sometimes resorting to unsavory anti-Catholic and anti-Irish stereotypes to build antipathy to the organization. Yet his cartoons were undeniably effective at highlighting Tammany's abuses to an audience that had no flurry of editorials could reach. That's why Tweed tried so ardently to silence him before. In the election of 1871, the voters of New York finally defanged the Tammany Tiger. When the dust settled, there was little doubt who'd vanquished the political giant. Even Vice President Skylar Colfax sent Nast a letter of congratulations. His cartoons continued to haunt Tweed even after the boss was forced into retirement. In 1873, Tweed was arrested and convicted on corruption charges. Tweed escaped to Spain, but Nast had made his face world famous and he was quickly recaptured. Tweed died in 1878 in New York City jail cell with copies of Nast's cartoons by his side. After taking down Tweed, Nash turned his attentions toward corrupt politicians in the federal government. Knowing that he had the full trust and loyalty of Harper's publisher, Fletcher Harper, Nash pulled no punches. In 1872, unhappy with his portrayal, Senator Carl Shores summoned Nash to Washington and threatened, You will not be allowed to continue your tax upon me. Your paper will not permit them. Nash replied, Oh, I think it will. Nash remained in his post, undisturbed. Schurz was booted out, booted from a Senate seat in 1875. This willingness to go after anyone, no matter how powerful, made Nass popular with readers, but less popular with some of his colleagues. He sparred, particularly with George William Curtis, Harper's political editor. Curtis was a lifelong abolitionist from New England and one of the fir first members of the Republican Party. He was outraged, however, when Nass turned his attention towards a Republican of Lecclaim. He was livid when Nass targeted his idol, Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts for ridicule. In this week's letter and others, Curtis pleaded with Nast to save his destructive pen only for those most deserving of it, arguing that cartoons are too blunt an object to criticize the mistakes of well-intentioned public servants. In another, he chastises, It is wrong to represent a morally contemptible man of the highest character with whom you politically differ. Nast was unmoved. While they disagreed frequently, Curtis and Nast did occasionally find common cause. In 1884, they united to support Democrat Grover Cleveland over Republican James G. Blaine. Nast detested Blaine for his role in passing the Implementary Chinese Exclusion Act. Both men worried that Blaine would revive the spoil system they both reviled. Cleveland won a close race, becoming the first Democratic president in more than 20 years, and the support of Harper's very well may have made the difference. Ultimately, though, Harper's was too small for both of them, and after the death of Fletcher Harper, Curtis was given more leeway to decide which Nast cartoons made it into print. No fan of being silenced, Nast left Harper's for good after the 1886 Christmas issue. After leaving Harper's, Nast struggled to make ends meet. 
and a twist of fate for a long campaign against Boyles, Nast eventually turned to President Theodore Roosevelt to help, begging for a diplomatic posting. Roosevelt, a fan of Nast, once declared, I learned my politics through your cartoons, found a posting for him to a consulate in Ecuador. Nast, undoubtedly, recognizing the irony of his predicament, worked diligently to justify the appointment through hard work. In 1902, when an outbreak of yellow fever spread through South America, he refused to abandon his post, a, divi a decision which eventually cost him his life.